So this is the episode I've been dreading. But I'm ready to get it over with. I think it's important that if we're going to have a conversation about Jews, sports, and America, that we have an honest conversation about Jews, sports, and America. That we don't focus entirely on all of the sports achievements that have brought us joy, but also the parts of the story that might bring us shame. Not everything about sports or religion or our country is a source of pride, even though so much of our show celebrates the things we do take pride in. Sports provides one of the clearest windows into our society today. I want to talk about what happens when we don't always like what we see through that window. And perhaps, more important, what we fear that others will see, taking in that same view based on our lived experience as Jews in America. Today, we're going to talk about Jewish team owners, particularly team owners who have behaved badly in some way in front of a national audience. We're going to talk about what that means in the year 2022, when we are seeing a rise in anti-Semitism and worrying even more about how we are perceived by others and what our future in America can and will look like. We're going to explore the idea of Ashanda and especially the idea of Ashanda Fardagoyim. If you're not familiar with these Yiddish words and phrases, stay tuned because we're about to dive into the toughest conversation of our season. I'm Meredith Shiner, and this is The Franchise, Jews, Sports, and America. Today, we're exploring Shandas and stereotypes through the stories of three Jewish team owners and how our reactions to them reveal our insecurities about ourselves and how we are treated. Or maybe it's just my insecurities, and you're just along for the ride. But first, on Shanda's. What is a Shanda? What a Shanda. What's a Shanda? A Shanda. What a Shanda. The clip you just heard was from the sitcom New Girl. Schmidt, who is Jewish, struggles to define what it means to his non-Jewish best friend. Or maybe he doesn't struggle. He just recognizes that the word and the existence of Shanda is so uniquely Jewish that it is impossible to explain to others. Fortunately, I can break it down for you. Ashanda is a catch-all Yiddish word that can mean a shame, disgrace, embarrassment, or scandal. I'm not an expert in Yiddish. It's been at least two generations in my family since anyone spoke it. But Shanda is a multidimensional word. On its face, Shanda conveys a heightened perception of how others see us and the overwhelming sense that all of our actions as Jews reflect on the entire community. But baked into that perception is expectation. An expectation that we should hold ourselves to a standard, to be good, so we don't fail everyone else. So we are not the Shanda. The most serious form of Shanda is a Shanda for the Goyim, literally translating into a shame before non-Jews. Something that embarrasses us in front of them. In 2022, I'm not sure there's a more serious Shanda than a Shanda for the Goyim. Something that makes us look bad in front of non-Jews 
as more and more non-Jews are driven to hate us. Like when someone who makes news for doing something bad turns out to be Jewish, it hits different. It feels personal and gross. Few genres of this kind of story make me feel more uncomfortable than that of Jewish sports team owners behaving badly. Today, we'll examine the stories of three Jewish team owners who all faced controversy. We'll look at Dan Snyder, the owner, for now at least, of the Washington football team, Don Sterling, former LA Clippers owner, and Fred and Jeff Wilpon, former owners of the New York Mets. To be clear, being Jewish is not what made these owners bad. And like in every episode before this one, this story is so much less about the specific people we're discussing and so much more about us and how we feel and respond to the world around us. And this conversation is unfortunately so timely in every way. As we started producing this episode in September, the news broke that Jewish owner Robert Sarver was being successfully pressured to sell his majority stake in the Phoenix Suns and Mercury, the NBA and WNBA teams. After an investigation, the NBA had found that Sarver had used racial slurs and engaged in other inappropriate workplace conduct. Initially, the NBA had issued a one-year suspension and a $10 million fine. But in short order and facing intense criticism, Sarver announced he'd be selling his stake in both franchises. It gets worse, though. This all happened in the days of awe, the 10-day period connecting Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In a statement announcing his sale of the team, Sarver invoked his Judaism to characterize his suspension as fair. But the public backlash he received in response to his behavior, the backlash that forced the sale, as unfair. Here's what Sarver wrote in his much-criticized statement. As a man of faith, I believe in atonement and the path to forgiveness. He then basically said that cancel culture had kept him from being written up in the NBA's Book of Life for yet another year. It filled me with hot rage to see this statement circulating on Twitter because he was foregrounding his Judaism and his bad behavior and appropriating the holiest day of the year to explain why we should forgive him instead of asking for forgiveness. Sarver was a late entry into this episode, and yet he represents the very worst of our fears about how bad Jewish team owners could reflect on all American Jews. Owners of American sports teams share some key characteristics. They're billionaires, they're billionaires who have dedicated part of their wealth to owning an enterprise where the key assets are other human beings. And they're people who, at their worst, see themselves as above criticism, even from fans of the teams that they own, teams that are beloved by entire cities or regions. The elite class of people who own sports teams is also not particularly diverse. Traditionally and currently, it's composed largely of rich white Christian men, like the most bonkers exclusionary country club of people who thrive off taking the things that we love, sports teams, and breaking them in front of our eyes. 
just for the fun of it. So Jews owning teams is, I guess, in a way, a sign of how far we've come. In America's capitalist culture, owning a team is a prize, a symbol of having reached the highest heights and having stepped through the doors of that exclusionary club where Jews previously had not been allowed. To some Jews, that might be something to celebrate. To me, the case is not so clear. This brings us to the saga of Washington football team owner, Dan Snyder. I feel like any conversation about bad owners should really begin with Snyder, arguably the worst owner in the worst league, the NFL. Well, he might not be the worst owner for long because he's finally being forced to explore a sale of the team. But more on that soon. For those of you who get to live on a blissful planet where the name Dan Snyder doesn't provoke any thoughts in response, he's the owner of the Washington football team. And yes, I know, they finally decided on a dumb new name in 2022, but I've been calling them the Washington football team for the past 15 years and have no intention of stopping now. Dan Snyder and his organization are bad in all of the big ways. Let us count the ways. They exploited team cheerleaders, by bringing them to Costa Rica, taking away their passports, and making them perform for an all-male audience representing the team's corporate sponsors. They say they were forced to pose topless in front of male sponsors and sweet holders during a calendar photo shoot. Now They installed a plexiglass stairwell at their offices that made it possible for anyone at the base of the stairs to look up the skirts of women employees, according to those women employees. They are currently being investigated by Congress for said toxic workplace. The owner of the NFL's Washington Commanders has been subpoenaed for questioning by a congressional committee. They broke Robert Griffin III and every other young quarterback the team has touched. Oh, and also, they just can't win football games. In case you had any doubts that this conversation would be timely, ESPN recently reported that Dan Snyder was compiling blackmail material against other NFL owners. In an unprecedented break from the unwritten rules of the club of billionaire owners, Indianapolis Colts owner Jim Irsay called for Dan Snyder to be stripped of his football team. And shortly before the release of this episode, ESPN reported that the Snyders had engaged Bank of America to explore selling the team. As I mentioned, bad in the big ways. But Dan Snyder is also bad in the small ways, in that perhaps he is the pettiest team owner in all of sports. In 2010, the Washington City Paper, the city's independent news weekly, published an A to Z list encyclopedia of all of Dan Snyder's quote-unquote failings. In response, he tried to sue the city paper into oblivion. He was Goliath, and they weren't even David. They were just a bunch of ragtag journalists holding fundraisers at dive bars to scrape together enough money for their legal fees. And really, survival. Worse, just like Sarver, Snyder tried to lean on the fact that the attacks against him were anti-Semitic, leveraging his Judaism when it was convenient to him, without any deeper consideration of what that claim might do. I remember doing a charity stand-up contest at the National Press Club in 2011 at the peak of the city paper's fight with Snyder in front of a ballroom of people 
The heart of my act was a series of pickup lines that I, a 24-year-old woman, would never want to hear in D.C. There was only one that brought the house down, and it was simply, Hi, I'm Dan Snyder. Dave McKenna was the author of that ill-fated A to Z piece that almost wiped out the city paper. You'll be pleased to know that the city paper survived Dan Snyder, and so did Dave. I wanted to talk to him about what makes Snyder such a uniquely bad sports figure, because I would argue he's the nation's foremost expert on that topic. Why is Dan Snyder bad? Like, let's set this foundation here. (laughs) Why is he bad? And why is he, as you say, the great uniter in terms of being acceptable to hate? Losing is the number one sin. And Dan Snyder, he lost. He always loses. But he took it further. He he attacks his own fans. Like everything he does is against the fans of his own team, throwing charges on everything, sneaking parking surcharges onto tickets or charging fans to watch practice. The first guy to do that. He didn't hide his gouging tendencies either. And it was always with real big moves, like making the worst seats in the house, which are the first couple rows of FedEx Field. You know, those are traditionally, historically, the cheapest seats in stadiums because you couldn't see anything. Dan Snyder took those and started charging, called them dream seats and started charging $3,000 a season ticket for them. And uh, (laughs) Snyder had just signed Bruce Smith, the all-time sax leader. And a friend of mine said, Unless you dream of Bruce Smith's ass, these aren't dream seats. If you're that low, you just see the sidelines. But Snyder, he's just, you know, he came in with the David Brooks columns and and the column that was written here by every publication, pretty much, uh, that this guy just wants to win. It's just going to be great. He's got a lot of money. He wants to spend it. He's a fan. He has a belt buckle with the name of the team on it. And he never showed any of that. He never did anything right. Everything he did from the start was to empty the goodwill tank that he had inherited. This team was a uniter. This team crossed the aisle. Like everyone on Sunday, you could go to the malls or the movies on Sunday and they'd be empty because people were watching the football team. It was the one team that was for all of Washington, right? It was a team that was for Black D.C. in a way that some of these other teams were not oriented for. One of my friends had posted the video from the local news about like the name change when they finally announced the commanders, which I refuse to use anyway. And like every man on the street interview was a black DC resident being like, the name doesn't matter as long as they like, if they like start winning, maybe I'll care. You know, there there is such a divide between the, you know, sort of incestuous political Washington where all of these carpetbaggers come in and, you know, go to Nats games when the Nats are winning. And then the Washington football team, which is so ingrained in the culture of the city in a way that like very few things are, he really screwed with that. He obliterated it. The old joke, my car got broken into. I had two tickets to to the Washington football team on the dashboard. The guy who broke in left two more. (laughs) You know, that that is 100 percent true now. Like everyone I know, including myself, get offered tickets free all the time. And I cannot think of anything I'd want to do less than go to a football game at Dan Snyder Stadium. It's just a horrendous experience. You you feel dirty no matter what for supporting this guy. Dan Snyder was so dirty that even Congress, the one entity in America perhaps less popular than him, decided to investigate him and his organization. As someone who covered Congress for almost a decade, 
I can tell you that House committees don't go after sports entities unless they think they have a slam-dunk PR case. And nothing is an easier win with the public than attacking Dan Snyder. Imagine running an organization that a House panel found to be so toxic that the chairwoman of the committee actually designed anti-workplace harassment legislation based on what they discovered. Dan Snyder doesn't have to imagine it, because again, that actually happened. There's no way around this. It sucks. It's bad enough that Dan Snyder is bad, and maybe the most hated owner in all of sports. Maybe ever. But him being Jewish? A total Shonda. I know Judaism did not cause his badness. It just makes the whole situation worse for Jews. At such a complicated time, the last thing Jews need is for a sports supervillain to be a member of the tribe. But somehow, even though it feels like Dan Snyder is the worst, there are other bad Jewish owners to consider as part of this story. It's time now, unfortunately, to discuss former Los Angeles Clippers owner, Don Sterling. Oh, Don Sterling, nay Donald Tokowitz, what do we do with you? For those who have memory hold the 2014 Sterling debacle, here are the key points. Sterling was a slumlord who was forced to sell an NBA team, the Clippers, because his mistress, V. Stiviano, recorded him saying vile, racist things, which she used as leverage in a lawsuit against his wife, Shelley Sterling, who was trying to recoup gifts Sterling had given Stiviano in the course of their affair. If that sounds like a lot, it's because it is. When Sterling was caught saying those abhorrent things on tape, he then went on an apology tour and horribly insulted Magic Johnson on national television. You know, the Magic Johnson, the most beloved person in all of Los Angeles. He had AIDS, and when he had those AIDS, I went to my synagogue and I prayed for him. I hoped he could live and be well. I didn't criticize him. I could have, is he an example for children? You know, because he has money, he's able to treat himself. But Magic Johnson is irrelevant in this thing. And that's just the Cliff's Notes version of the very true story of Shonda number two, Donald Sterling. I talked to Ramona Shelburne, an ESPN reporter based in LA, who has been the reporter on the Donald Sterling story from the very beginning, and who developed an entire 30 for 30 podcast series on the scandal and what it meant. Okay, so Donald Sterling was the former owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, but maybe even more importantly, he was the largest residential landholder in Los Angeles County. Most of the apartment buildings that you drive by in West Los Angeles or Chinatown or Koreatown or anywhere on basically the, the west side of LA, chances are it's probably owned by Donald Sterling and, and, and his realty company. Over the years, he has run on the wrong side of the Justice Department, on the wrong side of the NBA, on the wrong side of the, a lot of different, I wouldn't say laws, but best practices. And 
there have been numerous lawsuits filed against him by former mistresses or people he's been in business with, but it never was enough for the NBA to say, okay, you can't own the team anymore, even though you know he really had not invested much in the team. He hadn't done much to make them win, but none of those were enough to quote, get him canceled, I guess, if we, if we were talking in today's parlance, until there was one. B. Stiviano, one of his mistresses catches him on cell phone mic and is recording him saying some very uh, racially insensitive things. When Donald and V. Stiviano broke up, there was a, a lawsuit that went back and forth between Donald's wife, Shelly Sterling, and V. Stiviano, where Shelly was trying to recoup all of the gifts and money and, and things that Donald had given V. Stiviano. V. was trying to get her to drop the lawsuit, and she wouldn't do it. And eventually, one of the threats was, I'll leak these tapes that I have. You want me to have hate? Black people? I don't want you to have hate. That's what people do. They turn things around. I want you to love them privately in your whole life. Every day you could be with them. Every single day of your life. But they're not in public? But why publicize it on on the Instagram and why bring it to my games? Why bring the black people to the games? You can do whatever you want. The little I asked you was not to promote it on that and, and not to bring them to my games. Ramona and I, honestly, were both a little relieved that Sterling doesn't go by his given name. Donald Sterling grew up poor Jewish in East L.A., and his last name was Tokowitz. He subsequently changed it to Sterling. I actually, as a Jewish person, was glad he changed his name, right? Did you feel that way, too? I was like, oh, good. Just, yeah, just a little less Jewish. Yeah, I mean, it's, you got enough to worry about, right? You know, people do realize that he is Jewish eventually, but not necessarily because of his name. Um, you know, my last name uh, doesn't say, sound Jewish, but that's my dad's last name. My mom's last name was uh, Steinman. Okay, he was very obviously Jewish. But this small exchange about Don Sterling's given name also hit at one of the more challenging pieces of this story. There was a reason Donald Tokowitz changed his name. He was born in 1934 at a time when a name like Tokowitz was a lot less likely to land you a job than a name like Sterling. So the kid who faced so much anti-Semitism he changed his name went on to make so much money that he could buy a professional basketball team, but then lost that team because he was caught on tape expressing disdain for Black Americans. This feels like some sort of messed up loop of discrimination. Not to mention an especially bad look, given that more than 70% of NBA players are Black. Before all that, though, Sterling wasn't exactly a beloved team owner. The Clippers were a floundering franchise, literally ranked as one of the worst teams in all of professional sports. Sterling wasn't willing to invest what was needed to put the Clippers in a position to win. It didn't help that just across town, a different owner with a different NBA team was winning. One of the things I got very focused on was Donald's insecurity towards the former Lakers owner, Jerry Buss. Both of these people have experienced poverty. Both of them experienced discrimination. Both of them experienced what it's like to be poor and then rich. And both had choices about what to do with the money and power and status that they achieved in life. And both decide to buy an NBA franchise. Jerry Buss buys the Lakers in 79. Donald Sterling buys the San Diego Clippers in 83. The parallels are striking. And yet, One owner is one of the more beloved owners in NBA history, and one is one of the more reviled. What Jerry Buss did was 
he treated people well. He treated his players well. He made Magic Johnson the star. I mean, Jerry Buss saw him as a business partner, not a player who worked for him, not an asset who worked for him, not a star to make money off of. He empowered him as a person and a player. And in this wonderful bit of poetic symmetry, Magic Johnson is really one of the people who sets Donald Sterling off in a couple of these key moments. I mean, the picture that he was he got upset about B. Stiviano with was one was with Magic Johnson. Why is Magic such a trigger for him? Well, in a lot of ways, Magic is symbolic of what you can't buy. You can't buy a player's love and loyalty. You can't buy love from fans or from the city. You can't buy power and status. You can only achieve that level of affection or love or respect in the world and your city by doing good deeds, by treating people well, by treating them like humans. I say this and it probably sounds like I'm lionizing Jerry Buss. He had a lot of other issues too. But in terms of how he treated the players and how they treated the city and how he saw his franchise, it's just no comparison. You can't buy that love. In 2014, Don Sterling was fined $2.5 million and banned from the NBA for life. He was forced to sell the Clippers and the Sterling Family Trust made $2 billion on the sale. This whole Sterling affair, from being a predatory landlord, to being a horrible husband, to being a very, very, very bad team owner, to saying all sorts of horrific racist things, then profiting from all of it, that's Ashonda. And it's definitely Ashonda for the Goyam. I don't think I'm alone in feeling the nagging sense that Don Sterling's Jewishness somehow makes this whole thing worse for Jews. Like him facing bigotry when he grew up should have made him more empathetic to the plight of others, not less. It's unreasonable to think that every public Jew is an ambassador for all Jews. But when their badness makes them the rightful target of the world's most powerful, revered athletes, it sure can feel that way. Now that we've talked about two very obvious Shondas, I want to explore stereotypes and how they interplay with Shondas. I want to return to the conversation on the former owners of the New York Mets, the Wilpons, Father Fred, and son Jeff. Let's be clear. The Wilpons are more Shonda-adjacent. The way they ran the Mets, plus their business dealings with Shonda-in-chief Bernie Madoff, played into Jewish stereotypes in a really uncomfortable way. In episode three, we discussed how the Mets are the most Jewish team in all of sports, how Mets fans undergo the kind of metaphysical suffering inherently familiar to the Jewish people, and now view Mets fandom as a religion. So it's no surprise that Mets fans take Mets ownership seriously and personally. They're also enabled by one of the most aggressive sports media ecosystems in the entire world. It's not just that Mets fans thought about the Wilpons. 
It's that they were obsessed with the Wilpons. You guys are too hard on, on Fred Wilpon. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not like he didn't try. That's Sandy Koufax biographer Jane Levy, who you've heard a few times on this series. There's a sense in powerful men and successful businessmen like that, that they know how to do, well, if I can do that, I can do this. I mean, how hard can it be to, you know, create a winning baseball team? Well, guess what? It's really hard. It's really, really hard, no matter how good a curveball you threw when you were in high school. It turns out that Sandy Koufax wasn't the only person at his high school who threw a mean curveball. Sandy's best friend did, too. Sandy's lifelong best friend, Fred Wilpon. Wilpon was the great curveball pitcher at a Lafayette high school. And Sandy's best friend, and the only reason Sandy played any sandlot ball or any organized ball at all back in Brooklyn was because Fred was his buddy and he just wanted to hang out. That's what the other guys were doing. I think, and this is complete supposition because I never talked to him about it, I am sure Fred's tenure at the Mets was a torment for Sandy. I am sure he wanted Fred to be able to field a team that was a lot better and more successful than it was. It feels significant that Fred Wilpon's best friend to this day is Sandy Koufax, who is a foil to Ashonda in every way, a figure Jews of all ages are intensely proud of, and who is also recognized as great by so many non-Jews. It's hard to reckon with the idea that there might not be nearly as much Mets suffering without Fred Wilpon, but also that there might not be Hall of Famer Sandy Koufax without Fred Wilpon. It's like some sort of karmic trade. Remember in our conversation on the Mets, when journalist Howard Megdahl described Sandy leaving Brooklyn as this Elijah-like moment? As if Mets fans are still waiting for the prophet-like return of a Jewish hero? Mets fans did not get a Jewish lefty pitcher or a home-run king. The person they got instead was Sandy's best friend, and he almost broke the team. So I'm not sure how Mets fans would feel about Jane Levy's assertion that they were ever too hard on the Wilpons, even though it's these same fans that felt the Wilpons were so cheap that they referred to them as the coupons. Not very nice. And borderline anti-Semitic. Though we've talked about Fred, a lot of the Mets fans' ire was directed towards Fred's son, Jeff, who saw himself not only as an owner, but also, bizarrely, as the team's general manager. Jeff Wilpon said repeatedly his goal for the Mets wasn't to spend money on payroll. He only wanted to make the World Series, which... L-O-L. Meanwhile, in the Bronx, the Yankees won five World Series during the Wilpons' tenure. Because of the many things you could say about the Steinbrenner family, who still own the Yankees, being dumb enough to think you could win a World Series without spending money is not one of them. In 2010, New York Post reporter Joel Sherman wrote about Jeff's reputation across professional baseball. He reported that Jeff was viewed by his peers as, and I quote, short-tempered, tone-deaf, 
a credit seeker, an accountability deflector, a micromanager, a second guesser, a less than deep thinker, and bad at self-awareness. Ouch. In case you thought boneheadedness was limited to the sun, though, in 2011, in a New Yorker profile by Jeffrey Tubin, Fred Wilpon literally called the Mets a shitty team and nagged star players Carlos Beltran and David Wright. Shockingly, it would get worse for the Wilpons. As we talked about in our Mets episode, the Wilpons had invested a lot of money with Bernie Madoff, who went to prison for the most notorious Ponzi scheme in the history of this country. They had lost so much that they couldn't possibly keep the team. They had to sell, even though they had built this entire legacy of trying to own the Mets and to make something of the Mets while failing catastrophically at doing so. You could argue the Wilpons are the owners who represent some of the worst, most commonly held stereotypes of Jews in America. They were powerful, and they were cheap. In this way, how they were perceived as bad by their own fan base aligned with how anti-Semites think of Jews. By being bad owners and Jewish owners simultaneously, the Wilpons, alongside Snyder and Sterling and Sarver, became avatars for the most toxic, anti-Semitic beliefs held by Americans who hate Jews. You know, that we're rich, we control things, we're stingy, and maybe even worse, that in the process of being rich, controlling, and stingy, we ruin things that feel American. Because the people who hate us have never believed that we could be fully American to begin with. In 2020, Steve Cohen bought the Mets, which many Mets fans saw as a godsend, a new super-rich owner who was more committed to spending money on payroll. Steve Cohen is also Jewish, and it remains to be seen how that works out for all of us. I've had a lot of time to think about this episode, and there are two core ideas I've been wrestling with. The first is, are there really any good owners? Like, if you are a person who owns a literal team of humans, what is the best we can hope for? And second, are Jewish owners particularly bad? Or am I taking the whole Shonda thing too seriously because of the current perils of being Jewish in America? I actually found some comfort in asking myself these questions. And my takeaway is, of course, that these bad owners aren't bad because they are Jewish. They're bad because, by and large, most team owners are, just in varying degrees of badness. Is Dan Snyder really any worse than Jerry Jones? I mean, I don't particularly think so. That's reporter Dave Zirin, who I think is one of the country's foremost experts on the intersection of sports and justice. For those who aren't into the NFL, Jerry Jones is the oil-rich Christian billionaire who has owned the Dallas Cowboys since 1989. 
Dan Snyder's certainly been caught more than Jerry Jones, and he's less popular in ownership circles than Jerry Jones. To me, the fact that one is nominally Jewish and the other is nominally Christian is a detail. You know, I look at Donald Sterling, it's like, you know, the fact that he became wretched and toxic and terrible to me has much more to do with the hundreds of millions of dollars in his pocket than uh, when he chooses to fast. Here's the thing. I buy this idea. The idea that bad people are bad people regardless of the faith tradition they were born into. It should not be a reflection on all Jews that Dan Snyder is a singularly hated figure. Remember baseball writer Jake Mintz, who we talked to in episode four? We were chatting about this, and he put me on the spot with a surprising question. Let me ask you this. Do you take pride in the fact that Jews own teams? 20-second timeout before I share the rest of this exchange. Pride. Jake asked me about pride. This whole time, I was focused on shame. And I was focused on shame because to the extent that I understand my own personal Judaism, it's that it demands of me that I'm the best person that I can be, that I am good. Maybe you're listening to this episode and you think that I'm holding these bad Jewish owners to a higher standard, and I shouldn't. But the point is, I'm holding them to a higher standard because I feel like I should. Isn't that what's behind the whole concept of Ashanda in the first place? But now, back to Jake's question. Let me ask you this. Do you take pride in the fact that Jews own teams? No. Jake tried again, giving me a real-world, real-time example. The current attempt to sell the Washington Nationals, a team owned by a Jewish family. Do you want a Jew to buy the Nats from the learners? No. I don't really I don't really care. That's it. That's the sad truth. In one moment, when I wasn't expecting it, I realized that I didn't feel there was an upside to Jews owning sports teams. And maybe this is a me thing, reflecting my personal views about what it means to be an owner of a team and what degree of accomplishment that truly entails. Now that it appears that Washington, D.C.'s NFL team is also going up for sale, I feel like I have to state here that it's straight up more important that Dan Snyder sells the team than that a Jewish billionaire buys it from him. Because for me, there's little upside in my mind to having Jewish team owners and potentially unlimited downside based on where we are. To me, owning a sports team is not inherently good. It's not a thing we can directly appreciate, like actual play on the field. And the benefit of team ownership to the owners themselves far outweighs the benefits to society. And in my view, currently and specifically outweighs the benefits for American Jewish society. The thing about Shonda's and the idea that such a word exists for Jews and by Jews is that Shondas actually tell us an important story about contemporary Judaism. A Shonda is a Rorschach test for the person calling out the Shonda. Our individual determination of what constitutes a Shonda reveals how each of us views ourselves as Jews, what we think it means to be Jewish, and how a Jewish person should live up to our own view of our highest vision of ourselves in order to uphold the standards of the Jewish community. 
The beauty of Judaism, in my view, is that almost every Jewish person I know understands what it means to be Jewish in a way that is totally specific to them. The discomfort we've been sitting with all episode, the discomfort I have been sitting with all episode, is not from these Jewish owners being uniquely bad. They're not. It is about the specific bad we, as American Jews, are living through right now, and my unique view of the sources of that badness. These stories we have told this episode, they are the waves at the surface. Waves we will all see differently, based on our vantage point from where we sit on the shore. But the thing I really worry about is the undercurrent. The undercurrent of this conversation about Jewish owners is that it reflects the challenging pull of this series, of what it means to be a minority group in America. To be Jewish is to be an outsider, even if we can feel as if we've moved past that outsider status. Fears about anti-Semitism probably look different for every person listening to this right now. And maybe for you, like me, your fears have grown exponentially in the past few years. This episode is about one of my greatest fears, that I am leaving my son in an America that is a worse, more hate-filled, and more dangerous place for him to be who he is. I know I've taken a heavy turn, maybe too heavy if you're the kind of person who compartmentalizes sports away from the challenges of the real world. But I hate to break it to you, there's no separating the two. Robert Sarver linking the High Holidays to his despicable behavior? Maybe that recedes in the ocean of headlines that crest and fall daily. But maybe it doesn't. Maybe there's someone out there inclined to hateful views for whom this memory sticks. And the totality of these figures and these actions, these moments and memories, they have a material impact on us and the way we are accepted in this country. And that's the discomfort I live with. And I think it's the discomfort we all have to live with. If you have made it this far, thank you. And also, if you happen to be my father who tends to think I'm too pessimistic about these things, sorry. I'm actually optimistic that the kids will be all right. Speaking of, next episode on the franchise, something lighter. The people who make sports into a mitzvah. I'm Meredith Shiner, and I'll see you next time. The Franchise is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Meredith Shiner. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibovitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Our logo is by Kurt Hoffman. 
Special thanks to Tablet Magazine and the Tablet Studios team, including Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sara Fredman Ader, and Jerome Rusquet. And the Meredith Shiner team of Josh and Carter Zembic. Please rate and review us wherever you can listen to podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this series, tell a friend. You can write to us at franchise at tabletmag.com. And for more information about the show, check out tabletmag.com slash the franchise. For more from Tablet Studios, please visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. <laughs>